I'd like to welcome everyone to the event today. My name is Julia Pittner. I'm the Executive Director of the Institute for Palestine Studies. And we're proud to uh, put this uh, conversation on today in partnership with the Middle East Institute. The Institute for Palestine Studies um, has been around since 1963. Um, it is the uh, preeminent uh, institution for the study, the information, analysis, and research on Palestine and the question of Palestine and Palestine in the region. Um, we publish books. We publish our leading a journal, the Journal of Palestine Studies, and we also produce uh, occasional papers on issues that are relevant to the conversation. And we do things like this. So I'm quite happy to welcome all of you for a very interesting conversation, um, which will be led by Ambassador Feierstein. So do you want to come up? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Julia, uh, and uh, good afternoon, and uh, happy Good Friday, and happy Passover to, uh, to everyone in the audience. I am uh, Jerry Feierstein. I'm the Senior Vice President of the Middle East Institute, and I am pleased to introduce and uh, to moderate today's conversation in the aftermath of the uh, Israeli election on April 9th with uh, Dr. Raaf Zarayek. Netanyahu's re-election last week was largely seen as a death knell uh, to the prospect of a Palestinian state. His pledge to annex parts of the occupied West Bank uh, in tandem with the Trump administration's policies to shackle uh, the Palestinian national movement uh, raised grave concerns about any uh, possibility to uh, reignite a meaningful peace process and protect the rights of Palestinians. Uh, last week, uh, or actually uh, earlier this week, MEI was honored to welcome back Ambassador Hussam Zumlot uh, for a discussion on his commitment to the peace process uh, despite these setbacks. Today, we are pleased to continue the conversation with a prominent Palestinian academic and lawyer who can discuss the legal implications of Netanyahu's victory, as well as the situation on the ground for Palestinians in Israel and the occupied territories. Uh, Raif is currently associate pro uh, professor in jurisprudence uh, at Carmel Academic College in Haifa and academic co-director of the Minerva Center for the Humanities at Tel Aviv University. After several years as a practicing lawyer in Haifa and Nazareth, he attended Columbia University in New York, uh, where he earned a master's degree in law, and then Harvard University, where he earned a doctorate from Harvard Law School. He's the editor of Kadaya, a journal on Israeli affairs published by the Madar Center in Ramallah, and a member of the editorial board of the Journal of Palestine Studies. His publications focus on political philosophy, legal theory, uh, citizenship, and politics of identity. Before I welcome Raf uh, to give his remarks, I want to remind everyone that this event is being recorded and live streamed on our website, www.mei.edu. 
Uh, please remember to silence your mobile devices, uh, but we encourage you to tweet uh, using hashtag MEIPalestine. Additionally, we're happy to announce that C-SPAN is covering this event live. Uh, thank you again, and please join me in welcoming Raaf to the stage. So we look forward to, to hearing if you want to uh, open with a few comments, and uh, then we can go to a conversation. Uh, <clears throat> good morning, or good afternoon already. Um, thank you for showing up uh, this Friday. Um, and thank you. thank you for the invitation uh, to speak to the audience. Um, I would say just a few short, quick remarks, and I think it would be more constructive if we run this as a more uh, conversation-like, uh, question and answer. Um, so I would like to s stress just a few, to outline a few points that I think um, that might be considered uh, good starting point for the conversation. Uh, the first one, uh, that it's becoming clear that uh, Netanyahu and the right wing um, constitute a solid permanent majority in the coming future in Israel. So it's not a coincidence that he won the election, I think. Um, it's a formidable majority of 65 <laughs> members. And we have to bear in mind that um, there were about 200,000 votes um, that were wasted because there are two right-wing, extreme right-wing parties that didn't cross the threshold. Um, estimated six Knesset members. So theoretically, actually, uh, the power of the right wing in Israel uh, reaches about 70 Knesset members out of 120. And this includes the Palestinians in Israel. So had the parliament been only Jewish voters, the majority is even far more, um, let's say 75 to... Um, so this is one thing. The second is that... Those who are not, and those who didn't vote for Netanyahu and clear right wing, those who voted for Kahol Lavan, uh, blue and white, um, it's, we can hardly call them left wing. Uh, we can, at most, we can hold them to be uh, centrist. In a good day, we can call them centrist liberals. So in many ways, the whole political map is shifting to the right in, in, in this sense. So it's not just a victory in the election. Uh, for example, in 1977, we witnessed the uh, 
victory of the Likud that was taking over the government, I think we are now witnessing in the last few years, not only in this election, in the last decade, taking over state, society, and hegemony itself. So this is a new, a new phase in the history of the state. It's a new phase in the history of Zionism itself in a way that Netanyahu wants to claim um, an exclusive monopolist interpretation of what Zionism is actually in a way that other interpretation, more liberal, more lefty interpretation are considered even to be um, traitors to uh, ideas of Zionism, which means that we are witnessing uh, turn, an ideological turn that probably natural, some would see it even necessary in the history of the state, but what's clear is that it's natural. I wouldn't say, I mean, I'm not deterministic in history. History could have developed otherwise, but it's clearly that we are witnessing a new stage, and this new stage probably um, it's manifested in a couple of things, and probably I stop here and we open the conversation. One is a fierce attack against the legal system, the court system, the attorney general, and all the prosecution system, um, the rule of law, a fierce attack against the media against academic freedom, against uh, all NGOs that deal with issues of human rights. So there's clear shift here. And probably uh, there has never been a close affinity between incitement against the Palestinian and incitement against human rights Jewish activists. So the two, the question of Palestine and the question of democracy, are becoming more and more one question. The two clear things probably that stands out is, is one, the passing of the basic law, Israel as a nation state of the Jewish people, which I assume that you've heard about, you know about, and we'll, I'm ready to expand on that, the meaning of the law. How far is, is it new, in what sense, is it new and what kind of, what, what does it symbolize legally and politically? And the second thing probably is I think if, if we look at the last 20 or 30 years in Israel-Palestine, there was a time when we could talk about peace process, no matter how much is slow, crumbling, crawling, you name it. Um, and then there was a time when Netanyahu came to power. We witnessed uh, hope in this process and we moved to kind of managing the conflict uh, with an increased belief on the part of the Israeli government and the Israeli public that there is no solution for the conflict. So the best way is just to manage the conflict. I think in the last two years, since uh, Trump came to power, we're witnessing a new phase. 
And this phase now is that actually we want to eliminate the conflict, not to solve it in the sense that there's no more a Palestinian question because we want to impose the solution that we think and consider fit for Israeli interest and security. That started with the issue of the refugees, with the uh, American withholding any support for the UNRWA. So trying to eliminate the question of the refugees. Then the question of Jerusalem by moving the embassy is creating fait accompli reality where Jerusalem is outside of the issue of, of negotiation. And we are hearing uh, in the last few months uh, an increasing and more loud conversation about annexation parts of the West Bank, the territorial issue. Now, th these are the main issues of the Palestinian question, refugees, Jerusalem, and territory, the Palestinian state in the West Bank. If these are off the table, then what is to negotiate? So I think this is, we are witnessing a new phase uh, in the internal politics and in the regional politics uh, of Israel. So I'll, I'll stop now. I think that's, that's enough for despair. <laughs> but don't worry, there's something worse than despair. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Ralph. And I, I think you're right. Not only enough for despair, but, uh, but certainly I think enough for a, um, a very rich conversation, and and let me let me go back uh, and and begin with a point that that you made um, uh, early on in your in your comments, and that is that while much of the coverage of the election in um, in Israel, at least as it was perceived in the West and the United States was really focused on um, Benjamin Netanyahu and, and what it might mean in terms of his re-election. But, but one of the interesting aspects of this race was, as you said, that the, the distinctions, at least in terms of the Palestinian issue, the, the distinction between Benjamin Netanyahu and his um, uh, coalition or his allies and the opposition, uh, Benny Gantz and, and um, the group around his blue and white, uh, Yair Lapid and others, really was not significant. Uh, the fact was that uh, uh, Benny Gantz said also that he was not in, in favor of a Palestinian state. So it wasn't like, for example, um, 19, uh, uh, 1999, uh, the, uh, the uh, Barack election, uh, where, where clearly, you know, Barack was uh, was elected on the expectation that he would revive the uh, Oslo negotiations and that he would remain committed to a two-state solution. This time, there is no commitment on either part of the of the Israeli political spectrum what what um, what the Israeli position was going to be on two states. So, how does that? You made the comment that that perhaps uh, this is a reflection of an increasingly rightist Israeli political uh, environment. But how how does that translate in terms of 
is there still a viable two-state solution? Um, you know, are we going to get back to it uh, at any point, or is it, in your view, um, a dead letter? Yeah. I mean, I'm a political person in the, uh, in the good sense of the word, uh, if, if it still remains. Some people would deny that there is such a thing, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> um, political in the sense that uh, politics stands on its own. Uh, it's uh, it inspired by morality and inspired by economics, but it stands on its own if there is a if there is a political will. The two-state solution could be reached. Uh, so I don't buy into the deterministic view. Um, that the process is irreversible as if when it rains, it's irreversible. You can't bring the rain up as a natural physical necessity. But in politics, you can decide to dismantle settlements. You can take a decision. Israel have done that already in Sinai, it done that in Gaza. So if there is a political will and political pressure to do that, it's doable. But the question is, if there is such a political will within Israel and within the international community, and clearly the clear immediate answer is no to both. I, I don't see any Israeli will to do that. Uh, I don't see an international community that is pushing in that direction. I mean, the European makes such nice, rosy, beautiful statement about the two-state solution, but what are they ready to do in order to make that happen? Not much. Uh, under the current administration in the US, um, it's clearly, it's not pushing Israel to. So we, we are in a twilight time where actually the, the two-state solution is it's too late, probably, and uh, the one-state solution hasn't been born yet. So it's a twilight time. Uh, this might change um, if Israel decide to annex parts of the West Bank. Uh, the more uh, those chunks of the West Bank, the bigger chunks uh, that are annexed to Israel, this would threaten the possibility of the PA to claim that they are negotiating for a two-state mm -hmm. solution. Uh, and then uh, Israel and Palestine becoming one geopolitical unit, and probably the time will be ripe to argue and to claim for uh, equal rights in one state. That would be a different state from Israel as we know it now. But we are not there yet, mm -hmm. but we are in that direction, uh, definitely. Now, why I think there is no enough power in Israel for uh, dismantling uh, settlements? If you take Rabin government, who was the most promising in terms of the peace process, he had a partner, Arafat, he has an international support uh, by the US, by Europe. 
And at the peak of events, after the massacre in Al-Khalil, in Hebron, and even at that peak point, where clear political support for Rabin, locally and internationally, even within the public opinion, if at that point <coughs> he wasn't able to evacuate settlers from Al-Khalil, from Hebron, then you can ask yourself, then when? I mean, if that golden moment, we miss that moment, then when that can happen? Uh, under now, since then, mm -hmm. the number of settlers almost tripled. So it's, it's becoming <coughs> unthinkable, I think. But as I said, I'm a political person. If there is a will, uh, if there is a political will, you can always find solution. You can change the borders. You can, you, you can have nothing sacred about the Green Line. You can have parts of the Negev or parts of, I don't know, redraw the borders in a way uh, that allows two states. But for that, you need the political will. And I don't see this political will um, anywhere. Well, it raises an interesting uh, question. Uh, you know, part of, uh, again, part of the thesis was that, was that the Israeli electorate as a whole has moved to the right. Uh, but uh, as, you, as you said, I think quite rightly, that is not necessarily permanent. Uh, it may be amenable to some kind of modification that, that you may get uh, majority support in Israel, among Israeli Jews, um, again for a two-state solution, again for uh, recognizing the rights of the Palestinians, if it appeared that the prospects for such a solution might be available. And, and to a certain extent, uh, you might argue that, that the result of the election is, in fact, uh, a vote of despair, that, that such a solution isn't immediately apparent, that, that it's not seen by most people as being available at this time. Does that suggest that a Palestinian position that's more forward-leaning in asserting what might be an acceptable solution, what might address some of Israel's concerns um, as a going-in position, that perhaps the Palestinians, rather than waiting to see what the deal of the century looks like, and we pretty much know what it's going to look like, uh, whether if they were to assert their own vision of a political settlement, that involved a two-state solution, would that, in your view, have influence in changing the, the, um, the attitude inside of Israel and perhaps uh, putting more pressure on the government of Israel to respond? I think the short answer is no. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, <coughs> Some philosopher thinks that we can convince each other if we debate in good faith and we have enough time and uh, both we use reasoned argument to support our stance or our attitudes. Uh, that might be right in theory. The problem is, or the question is, why to listen at the first place? Why to enter the conversation? And for that, no reasoned argument can force one party to listen to the other party. 
So the beginning of the conversation, uh, as you say, uh, the, the fact that Palestinians put something on the table in order sort of to put Israel in the corner. No, that wouldn't put Israel in the corner because the Israelis don't see any need to enter into any conversation with the Palestinians because there's no pressure or need or desire or pain on the part of Israelis to enter a conversation. I mean, why to enter a conversation when you're winning, when you're having uh, support of the US, when you're annexing the West Bank, when you're building settlements, and you can get away with it? I mean, you have to be really a super moralist or super altruist or you have a divine qualities of generosity uh, in order to enter a conversation that is based on reason and justice and morality because you know that you have to give up something. Why to enter in such a conversation? And how many times uh, Abu Mazen has to repeat the same message in the UN time and again, time and again in every um, uh, UN Assembly annual meeting in September, time and again, our hands to the peace, to the two-state solution, etc. Et and how many times at one point it becomes humiliating to offer solutions to someone who's not ready to listen. It's really, really, uh, th th there is something that lacks generosity if someone doesn't want to listen to you. It's probably silence is better under these circumstances than continuing to convince someone who's not ready to be convinced. So I don't think that uh, this is what is needed. But probably what is needed in order to um, to do something even before the, the plan is being put is a clear no by the Palestinians. Um, and with coordination with the Arab world. Because the Palestinians now um, are not in a position really uh, to lead um, an international pressure on Israel. The problem is that as we see the Arab world now, uh, it's not promising, as you can imagine, after the Arab Spring and after the um, courting between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but still, I think the Palestinian shouldn't underestimate the moral power and the justness of their cause. Despite everything, I don't believe Saudi Arabia um, is so cheap to normalize with Israel without making Israel paying at least a minimal price. Now, can we count on that? In part, at the end, we have to count on ourselves. And the first thing to count on ourselves is, first of all, to reunite the efforts between Fatah and Hamas, between the West Bank and Gaza. Um, to uh, make one front against Israel and to make a clear statement what the Palestinians uh, want. That wouldn't make pressure on Israel, but at least that would make the Trump plans uh, probably evaporate uh, in the wind. And, and here's probably going back to Netanyahu and guns. 
Probably there is a difference between them in the relation to Gaza and Abu Mazen. I think Hamas wanted Netanyahu to win the election. There is a sort of a, uh, implicit uh, way of monitoring and regulating the relation between Gaza and Netanyahu. I think Gans uh, would have put more effort in speaking to the PA, giving more credibility to Abu Mazen, and undermining Hamas. So I think on that front, we could have witnessed a different attitude between the two, definitely. Hmm. I think that you're uh, absolutely right on, uh, on the Saudis. And, uh, and you know, certainly the polling data that we've seen uh, from the Gulf, not only from Saudi Arabia, but from the UAE and elsewhere, still demonstrates that there's still strong popular support in, in the Gulf for the Palestinians, for the Palestinian cause. And I suspect that that will uh, limit the degree to which any of the Gulf states is willing to, um, to accept a, uh, a strategy that, that denies Palestinian rights. The King Salman has been very blunt, and King Salman um, knows the Palestinian account from decades of experience of having held that portfolio for the Al Saud. So, so uh, it, it's never been clear to me that um, all of the talk about the outside-in strategy and the idea that somehow the Gulf states are going to be responsible for pressuring the Palestinians to accept something that's so clearly unacceptable has ever been a realistic strategy. I guess the question is, to what extent um, can the Palestinians work with the Gulf states and with the Egyptians and the Jordanians and others to achieve a, a common, you know, expressly, clearly articulated position of this is what, you know, this is what we, we um, you know, will accept. We have the Arab Peace Initiative, the King Abdullah Initiative from 2002. Is that still relevant in your view? Is that still... Is, should that still be the, the basic um, uh, going in position for the Arab uh, Ummah? I mean, you just asked me if the Palestinian can put something on the table that probably can or is able to corner Israel. Now remember, you just mentioned the Arab Initiative of 2002, uh, which basically restates the idea of two-state solution, uh, decent and just uh, solution for the refugee problem, not even right of return. It's just decent and... Uh, and in return, full normalization with the Arab world. It's not only normalization with the Palestinian. Now, if the whole Arab world, led by Saudi Arabia and other states, couldn't corner Israel, I mean, it would be very optimistic to think that the Palestinians themselves can corner Israel. If all the Arab world with all of its resources and material resources and the possibility to open the markets and normalization with Israel, if all of that couldn't seduce Israel, actually, to accept that initiative, the Palestinian has much less to offer to seduce Israel. 
So the Palestinian questions uh, for many Israelis is becoming an internal question, as there's a question of environment, a question of crime, and there is the Palestinian question. It's not a constitutive question of the existence of, of Israel in, in many ways. So in that sense, um, I, I don't see how it can corner uh, Israel. Now, uh, after all, as I said, the key is Palestinian unity and Palestinian clear strategy. Um, and I think this is the key point to start everything, all other wheels. This can, I think, put some pressure on the Arab world because, as, as, as you mentioned, I think Saudi Arabia in the last couple of months, uh, King Salman is making some, let's say, is withholding the fast process of normalizing with Israel. Um, and we don't know that where that would lead. I mean, this is not a strategic decision to change the whole. Uh, but remember, um, as nobody expected the Arab Spring, no one expects what comes next. So. There's always room for hope, and the hope comes simply from the fact that we are ignorant. There's always something that's happening now as an undercurrent mm -hmm. that we don't see. Uh, so I, I gain some hope from the fact that I don't know everything, and I can't discern things in the process of happening. Only in ex post factum we can discover, oh, those undercurrent, how we didn't see them in real time. I mean, this is the cunning of reason of history, that history finds its way behind the back of uh, the heroes and behind the back of all of us. And um, so things, in fact, can happen. Now, the optimistic things, if, 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 if to think about optimistic things, is that whatever Israel thinks, there are still about two millions in Israel, Palestinian, about three million in the West Bank, and about the same in, in Gaza. And any way you look at it in the future, I don't see how Israel is gonna continue to manage the Palestinian. I mean, the fact of the matter that this land, from the sea to the river, is binational, and so Israel, in the long run, is in crisis. It has to choose either two states, either ethnic cleansing, or apartheid, or a binational state. I mean, these are the options. All of them are painful for Israel. Mm. So in many ways, uh, the climax of the Zionist project is still ahead of us. Um, they managed in 1948 to solve the problem of demography by expelling the Palestinians. Uh, but like every uh, messianic movement, they overstated their victory. And in 1967, by occupying the West Bank, they reintroduced the problem that they solved in 1948. <laughs> so in many ways, uh, philosophically and historically, we are more now like the 40s of the last century than the 80s of the last century. We are back again into one unit in Palestine, 
where there are two major groups, and the demographic question is facing us, not behind us. Mm -hmm. uh, so this means that the Palestinians still has many cards to play the question if they know how to play them well. Well, it raises an interesting question, which is, uh, in fact, you know, we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but there are really three communities here, right? I mean, there's the Israeli Jewish population, there is the Palestinian population in the occupied territories, and then there is a, a sizable population of, of Israeli Arabs or Israeli Palestinians. We haven't really talked very much about them, but, but what is their attitude about the situation? And they look at it from a very different perspective of you know, being Israeli citizens, and yet you have Benjamin Netanyahu and, and the Knesset and the, the last Knesset basically supporting legislation to say that they're really not citizens or they're not certainly not first-class citizens. Uh, that um, that uh, Israel is not a state of its citizens, it is a state of Jews only. So what, what is their attitude and how do they see um, their way forward in terms of asserting their own national rights, in terms of asserting their own um, civil, civil rights and, and human rights um, in, this, uh, in this context of an extremely or of an increasingly extremist Israeli government. Yeah, in fact, one of the uh, features of this last election, it was uh, an election in the shadow of the new basic law. I'll say a couple of words about this law uh, in a moment. Uh, second, uh, with an increasing incitement by Netanyahu in person, claiming that Arab parties are supporting terror, and many repeating this as a mantra. Um, and the, the Kahol Lavan actually didn't utter the word Arabs in all the elections, so they took distance. And in this sense, they participated in silent, silently with the incitement, instead of saying, as Rabin once said, I mean, I'm president or I'm the prime minister, all citizens are equal, etc. They didn't take that position and they were playing in the playground of Netanyahu in this sense. Added to that, uh, the fact that uh, the Likud indirectly put uh, 1,300 cameras in um, the election booths or um, in the Arab society uh, towns and villages. Uh, which means that, which signals that we are watching you uh, and sent a message that you are, uh, we don't trust you in the election. I mean, all, all of these are signaling something to the Palestinian, pushing them outside um, citizenship. Now, I think there is a transformation of the idea of separation in as an ideology in Zionism. I mean, Zionism, like most national and settler colonial project, is based on separation. I mean, Zionism wasn't meant to solve the Palestinian question, the Jewish question. It's made by Jews for the sake of Jews. So it's by its nature exclusive. But at one point, Zionism was ready to compromise at a certain point, reluctantly, hesitantly, 
slowly on the idea of territorial separation between the Palestinian and Israelis, including Palestinians being full citizens, in theory, in Israel. So that was the Oslo idea. With this collapsing, The new phase of Zionism is still based on the idea of separation, but it's reformulated itself. N now the idea of separation is not territorial. The idea is ethnic separation. What do I mean by that? If the Oslo assumes that there is a border between Israel and Palestine, and that the settlers are outside the state and they should come back to the state, and that the Israeli-Palestinian citizens are part of the state. So the Palestinian-Israeli as the normal and the settlers are the abnormal situation because they are outside the territory, because there is a line between what is in the state and what is outside the state. I mean, this is the paradigm of Oslo. In the last 15 years, with the increase of settlers, of the settlement project, not only of settlers, but settlement as a project. The settler project is not anymore ideological. You don't have to be messianic or right-wing extremists to go to settle there. It's not a matter of security. So it's not ideological, and it has nothing to do with security, and it's not temporal. So there are three changes. It's not ideological, it's not temporal, it's not security related. So there's a process of normalizing the settlers. When you normalize the settlers, the green line doesn't exist. It exists only for the Palestinians that can't cross the border, but for Israelis, they can cross the border. Now what's happening in the last decade is the following. The settlers are bringing, actually, the West Bank with them. They are thought to be inside Israel. They are normalized. You have the University of Ariel. There are trains going there. There are buses. It's just being normalized. So the settlers becoming part of Israel. And with the new law of basic law, the Palestinian Israelis are ousted from citizenship. So you see a double movement where what is inside is outside it, and what is outside is becoming inside it. Now this is the paradigm of a new mode of separation, that it's not territorial. It's based on national, ethno-national religious separation, where no matter if you are inside Israel or outside Israel, the dividing line now, if you are a Palestinian or a Jew, regardless, of the place where. So this is the territorialization of separation. Mm -hmm. So the separation now is based on along different lines than it used, it used to be. Now, where this would lead, uh, we witnessed a decrease in the percentage of Palestinian participating in the election. It was about 50%. The last election, it was about 64%, in part due to the fact that the United Arab List that gather all uh, parties win. 
uh, we've witnessed this decrease due to several facts. One, the fragmentation of the Arab list. Uh, the other, an increasing feel of estrangement from Israel as a state and society. An increased feeling that whatever you do in the Knesset, you can't change anything actually in regard of the politics of Israel vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Palestinians. Now, what I fear and predict at the same time is the following. I predict the increase of two modes of um, dealing with Israel from the Palestinian citizens of Israel. One group would think that equal citizenship mean by definition going more toward the Israeli society in a political mood, in the sense of voting to Zionist parties. So that would collapse the idea of citizenship with the idea of accepting Israel as it is. And on the other hand, we will witness those who will withhold any re relationship with Israel, treating it only as a settler, colonial state with estrangement from, from the state. Now, what that would mean, that the idea of a citizenship as a site of contestation of Zionism itself wouldn't be inhibited by political descenders. Because either you are for citizenship that is convergent with accepting Israel as it is, or you're, outside, or you're against Israel as it is, and you think that this is forces you also to be outside the circles mm -hmm. of citizenship. And I think a critical work of resisting the status quo now is actually to enlarge this space of being in citizenship, but outside the way Israel actually mm -hmm. define itself. This is very thin and limited space. But I think now the role of uh, radical um, politics is to enlarge this space of being inside citizenship and outside Israel the way it defined itself. Mm -hmm. This is a thin line, but I, I think that there is the effort that should be uh, done. Otherwise, we'll end up with good Arab citizens and bad Arab citizens. And right. the both extreme, I think, are not helpful in changing uh, the politics of Israel. Right. I want to I want to give uh, people in the audience a, a chance to uh, to to weigh in with their own questions or comments in a moment. But before we do that, uh, we haven't talked very much at all about the Trump administration, and uh, um, and uh, what we um, can anticipate. I mean, I, I think that can you? Well, we we can. Is it a we contradiction can, in terms? Uh, well, uh, probably, um, but uh, but uh, nevertheless, I think we have to go there. Um, basically, we have a, a, a Trump administration that is, in its own way, a settler government. I mean, it is. 
uh, it has embraced, not only has it embraced Israel, but it's embraced, embraced the, the kind of settler ideology of, of the extreme right in, uh, in Israel. And so, so the question is, as, as you're here in the U.S., as you're looking at the United States as uh, uh, perhaps a, a critical uh, element in terms of determining how we go forward on some of these issues that we've just been uh, discussing, how would you approach the American conundrum? How would you, uh, how would you try to see the U.S. role going forward? Not only necessarily during the remainder of the Trump administration, but perhaps in the uh, in the future. I mean, I remember that uh, I was uh, almost a kid when James Baker, mm -hmm. after the Iraq War and uh, the Shamir government, and he went in uh, in his uh, morning. Uh, briefing to the, to the press, and he said publicly in front of all cameras, when Israel becomes serious about the peace process, here is the telephone number of the State Department, and he just, he just stated the number. Um, so one small move by an American uh, government uh, administration, and Israel would know its place. Uh, will that happen? In the near future, I don't see that is happening, I must say. Um, why is that? I think in part because there's no Arab pressure on America to change its policy, and you don't get anything for free in politics. Um, so in the coming future, I don't see any change in American policy, but as I said, uh, Things, things can change. Yeah. I, again, I, uh, hopeful because I'm ignorant. <laughs> well, one of the things that's interesting, of course, is that the extremism of the Trump administration on these issues has, in a sense, opened up more space for debate about it within the American public. Yeah, and that uh, I see and that. that, and that there's more divergence of views today about um, where the U.S. should be on Israeli-Palestinian issues than there might have been say five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, if we want to see signs or good signs is that Israel once was in the consensus between Democrats and Republicans, uh, but given the Trump administration, it becoming that um, it's not that way anymore and Israel, support of Israel is more associated with the Republicans and uh, Democrats um, uh, slowly, uh, becoming more ready to, to, to voice their opposition uh, to Israeli policy. I think the, uh, the Democrat candidate saying that Netanyahu is a racist uh, a couple of weeks ago is something to, uh, it's not that what he thinks uh, what is important, but what's important that he thinks he can say that and get away with it right. with, within the American public, or at least with the with the Democrats yes. in this country. And I think this is, wouldn't have been um, thoughtful or wouldn't have been thinkable uh, mm -hmm. 10 years ago, probably. So probably something is happening in this, uh, in this regard. We'll see. With that, let me uh, ask people in the audience uh, if they want to, to, uh, uh, to ask a question. 
uh, if you would uh, uh, state your name and affiliation when we, uh, when we call on you, and this gentleman uh, straight back. Thank you. My name is Saeed Erkat. I'm a Palestinian journalist. Uh, you said that we are moving towards a geopolitical unit, but we're not there yet. Why aren't we there yet? I mean, you know, you also stated in this two sentences after that, that, you know, all Palestinians from the river to the sea are under the control of Israelis. What you have is one governing thing, uh, you know, no, you know, will there be like a watershed event, a milestone when we get there, you know, there are going to be like city limits, welcome to the one state solution or something like this? Thank you. Yeah. That's an excellent question because I think there is a difference between the reality and its representation and the political imaginaire that capture reality. I think that as long as the Palestinians themselves, their official stand is two-state solution, it means that they're asking for separation. They're still entertaining the idea of borders and of separation. They're not asking for equal rights in all of Palestine, as the, the Nelson Mandela in uh, uh, Freedom Charter, where he thought of South Africa as one unit and said, okay, let's all live together. I think this is not the case in Palestine. The Palestinians themselves, by the PA, represented by the PA, are still thinking of centrifugal solution, not centripetal, in the sense of creating two units, not in one unit. When you start to think in the mode of one unit, the rhetoric is different. And I, I think the Palestinians have good reason why to stick to the two-state solution to a certain point, because there is a history of international community making decisions and programs and plans based on the two-state solution. Uh, the Hague decision of the International Court states that there is a green line and that's why the wall is illegal because it's not on the... So you have a history that assumes the existence or the hope of two units solution. Now it takes time to move from one paradigm to the other. Probably the annexation of chunks of the West Bank would be de jure, not only de facto, but de jure, the death of, uh, of the two states, of the idea of separation. We don't get out of illusion uh, that easily. Even the dead solutions, we have to bury them to go through the mourning process in order to move to new solution. And this is, you can't hurry that simply. It's, it takes time sometimes. Um, lady here. Thank you. My name is Maya Tabet, and I'm the associate editor of the Journal of Palestine Studies. I wanted to ask <coughs> if in particular, uh, at the end of your um, talk, you talked about uh, how resisting the status quo is to enlarge the space of being um, a citizen in Israel, a Palestinian citizen. And you said there was a very narrow, very thin, very narrow space, very thin line between, um, in this effort of resistance between being a citizen 
against the state of Israel as it is, i.e. accepting the definition of Israel as itself, and between, you know, just withdrawing altogether. And so what is that space made up of? What does it look like for you? Yeah. Um, that's a long answer because that, that means developing strategy. And that's, that's I think, uh, an effort that Palestinians in Israel needs to develop and to theorize. It's under-theorized. And in part, they have to theorize a historical compromise with the Jewish national collectivity in Palestine and to say, what is the status of the Jews in Palestine? In the sense of thinking of uh, Jewish nationalism that is not necessarily colonial, that is not necessarily exclusive, that not necessarily uh, based on ongoing settlement and uh, rejecting of the Palestinian. Um, that's difficult. But I think this is the space that I think that the Palestinian can say, we stick to the idea of citizenship, but we reject the way that is being appropriated and interpreted um, in Israel now. And that means make a really very thorough surgery of rejecting uh, any Jewish privileges, either in Israel or in the West Bank or etc. But I'm speaking now in Israel, while trying to theorize Palest uh, Jewish rights. The Palestinians are mistaken if they think that they don't have something to offer for the Jews. I mean, we offer them to share our homeland, after all. And I think this is the space that I'm talking about. It's the space that what's good about citizenship, or what I mean by citizenship, is getting over the illusion that one is talking to himself in the sense that thinking that there is another group and we have to meet on a certain way of making living together, no matter how. We have to find, and that's for me is the idea, the core of the idea of citizenship, is the idea of thinking from the point of view of others of others in this case, of Jewish nationalism. And this is a thin space, because Israel was based as a Zionist settler project. But things historically develop. And we shouldn't stick to the way Israel perceives itself. We have to push it to develop in a certain direction uh, in this sense. So we have to understand history, how we came here. Um, but we have to find the way um, to, to narrow this space, that I'm inside citizenship, but I reject the law. Actually, citizenship doesn't mean that I have to abide by all the laws of the state. Sometimes citizenship demands out of loyalty to the demos that I reject certain unjust laws. I think in the case of Pelsey versus Ferguson in this country, when a woman says, 
I'm not going to abide by the laws as long as they are unjust. I don't know if she was asserting her citizenship or denying her citizenship. We should be able to think to resist laws. Yes, to resist laws, to say no to laws, to certain laws as long as they are unjust, and to stay within the discourse of citizenship. Now, this is a thin line. It's very delicate line, because you must still be able to say to those that you oppose something that can justify your resistance to the laws. You can't turn your back to them. So this is the space that I'm talking about. This needs a vision, and it's painful. Let's come over here. Uh, my name is Khalil. Uh, I'm from Greenpeace. You started off by saying um, you thought it was inevitable like the, that Israel would be, move more and more to the right. Can you uh, elaborate why you think that is the case? And the other thing is, <clears throat> if you uh, look at the demographics, like you said, there is a solid right-wing majority in Israel. And even if Blue and White had won the most number of seats in terms of coalition making amongst Jewish parties, it always favors the right, unless you include Palestinian citizens of Israel. Do you think that as Israel moves more and more to the right, that center-left Israeli Jews will realize that they can't do this on their own and that might create an opportunity for a coalition and that they're going to drop this idea that the only legitimate government is a Jewish-only government, that it can be a government with citizens, Arabs and Jews? I mean, why Israel is moving to the right is clear, because look at the political programs. If the alternative to Netanyahu is not speaking about Palestine or two-state solution or peace process, they, they even didn't utter the word peace or process or Palestine. So that's clear why I think that Israel is moving to the right. Now, as to the second question, uh, I think great events in history happens. Um, when the particular interest of a certain group meets a universal moral ideal. I don't believe in over-altruism in politics. We are not a hero. The last one was crucified 2,000 years ago. Now, look for example at the demonstration after Sabra and Shatila in Tel Aviv. Huge demonstration few hundred thousands. Why is that? In part is, there is moral sentiments. But on the other hand, it's party politics of the Labour Party meets a moral sentiment. So the interest of the party meets a moral ideal. And this combination actually makes things move. Why I'm saying that? I think the desire for the center-left to regain power might open the channels of a conversation with the, with the Palestinian Israel. And that in itself might create a dynamic that it's not that we continue that you give us your votes and we will win. That might create a new conversation about what is this state? What is the future of the state? Why it was born? Where it's heading? And this could lead to 
new terminology which is we lacking. We are lacking the language in which we can articulate political agenda. Um, this might happen, only might, because I don't see um, figures in Palestinian political leadership who are able to do that, um, nor in the Israeli public at the moment. But sometimes historical difficult times bring with them also historical figures. Uh, but that, that might be something, a development that we will uh, witness. Uh, but in itself, even if the tomorrow merits would be the head of the government, uh, the idea of evacuating the settlement now is just, just unthinkable. We need a disaster. Our problem that we don't have a disaster. <laughs> in the sense that uh, it's not that Israel has no partner for peace. Actually, Israel has no partner for war. That's the problem of Israel. In the sense that it doesn't experience the need to make peace because there is no threat of war. And those who are ready to go to war with Israel are not ready to make peace with Israel, like Hezbollah. And those who are ready to make peace with Israel, like Abu Mazen, are not ready to go to war with Israel. So that's why Israel is left actually without any incentive to do any compromise. Thank you. Uh, Roberta Cohen, a retired long history in human rights field. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning of your remarks the rule of law in the courts and the possible attacks on them. Uh, could you give uh, some comments on the antecedents to that, as well as the current candidates for Minister of Justice, and what do you think it would take for the courts to be able to withstand an onslaught against them? Yeah, I mean, uh, to imagine that someone is soon would be indicted with at least three different charges. Is the same person as a prime minister that would appoint the minister of justice that would be responsible of his indictment? I think that in itself says it all. I mean, what kind of a legal system is that that allows actually the accused to be in control of the process? The American of his, system. Uh, if of his of his indictment, huh? The, I said the American system. Okay, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, actually, even the American system is uh, the, the indictment is already there before he was elected in the case of Israel. I mean, he's already potentially in, in, indicted. Now, I think this is, this is really problematic. Now, the candidates, they, they, they already declared, both of them, Yariv Levine and Smutrich, both of them, first of all, uh, said that <laughs> part of the coalition agreement is that all partners of the, of the government uh, will commit to support what they call the French law, which gives immunity to prime minister 
as long as he in office. So that means giving immunity to Netanyahu from any possibility of prosecution. Second, there are endless proposals to change the legal system and the role of the Supreme Court itself. Um, so the Israeli Supreme Court has a, as the American court, the power to strike, to strike down laws that are unconstitutional. They haven't used this probably only a couple of times on marginal issues, but even that, uh, for this government, they think that that's too much power to the court. Now beware. The last few appointments to the court were actually appointment of this of the former government, which is itself was very right-wing government. But even those judges, they don't trust them. Uh, there are proposals to change the way that judges are being appointed. Uh, the government wants to have the power to appoint uh, the judges. Uh, now this is. This is really threatening. Uh, the, what remained of the independence of the uh, legal uh, apparatus, legal regime, and I'm not the one who says that. Even former Supreme Court Justice Alikim Rubinstein, we can't, uh, we can't accuse him of being left-wing or even liberal. He was the legal advisor of uh, uh, Menachem Begin. Um, then he was attorney general. And uh, then he was appointed justice to the Supreme Court. And he yesterday made the um, statement that it's really dangerous what we are uh, witnessing. And I think it is pretty dangerous. It is pretty dangerous. Okay. Jay Jupiter, former civil affairs officer. What is your view of the strategy to, of, the, of the Palestinians to boycott the election and the lower turnout this year than the previous election? Yeah. First of all, I mean, uh, boycotting is, is one legitimate strategy that different groups has the right to use. Um, though I think in the case of Palestinian in Israel, I, I can't see the potential of this boycott. I mean, the boycott usually is helpful in certain situations. Uh, one, if the question of the legitimacy is at stake, but the Palestinians have been going to election for 70 years, so it's really difficult to undo this whole process and to bring. Second, um, I don't think they can succeed because the Palestinian and Israel, legally, economically, uh, structurally, are very much embedded in the Israeli system. They need the Israeli system. So if the, let's say, nationalists w would want to boycott, there's always other groups 
that would go to the election. And they will continue to speak in the name of the Palestinians. It's not that. Now, I think I have very limited um, expectation from the Knesset members, Palestinian Knesset member, and that's why I think they should go to the Knesset. Because I don't have high expectations, I don't have lots of disappointment. And the major thing is that the following, the Palestinians in Israel, which about two millions they will become soon, are the only group out of all the Palestinians all around the world that are allowed to elect their leaders. Now, this is in itself something of, of great importance. It's, you can't underestimate this, this fact. But on the long run, I have a more ideological uh, point. I think if you look at the long run to the future, citizenship is the organizing principle for Palestine Israel. In the sense, whether it's inside Israel or Israel and the Palestinian territories together. In the sense, we are stuck in this sphere together for a long time. And as I said, what citizenship is thinking. I'm weary of identitarian politics of the withdrawal from the public sphere and you start to talk to yourself. Identity politics tends to be a monologue on the long run. And I think there is something sobering, alarming, awakening by the fact that you have to stand in the Knesset and to speak Hebrew to Jewish audience. Because you have to articulate yourself in a way that understandable, reasonable, thinkable, and makes sense to the other. And I think this is in itself has a, an intellectual and political value on the long run. You can't see. Oh, yes, straight back. Yeah, hello. Uh, my name is Khaled Husni. I'm a Deputy Chief of Mission of the Arab League, permanent mission here in D.C. And I'd like to thank you for such an enriching uh, discussion. And uh, it's no secret that uh, yesterday or the day before, uh, I'd like to take you back to the question that you deflected from uh, Mr. Ambassador about the Trump administration. There was a meeting a couple of days ago that uh, was with... Uh, senior advisor to the, the U.S. President, uh, Jared Kushner, where he met with about 100 ambassadors and the so-called uh, deal of the century that is expected to be released within uh, the next month or so. And I would like to get your view. I, I wouldn't have let this meeting end without asking you about this. Uh, how do you feel this is going to play out? Do you have any predictions, any optimism about anything that might come out of this? Already some news are leaking out of that meeting that... Uh, Reality on the ground is going to stay the way it is in terms of occupied lands, in terms of issues like this. Uh, things will be traded in for economic uh, reform issues. So I'd like to hear your view on this. Uh, I'd be really interested. Do you, you have more details about what is the plan? Nobody has any details about the plans. Uh, nothing was released. They were promised to be released uh, after the month of Ramadan. So uh, 
everybody's kind of on suspense mode right now, waiting to hear what the U.S. administration has to say about this. Dan, if we take a prediction, extrapolate of what uh, Mr. Trump uh, politics uh, regarding the Golan, regarding Jerusalem, regarding the refugees, there's not much hope that uh, the next plan would be would appeal to Palestinian uh, audience. Um, so I I don't see uh, Abu Mazen uh, late in his life uh, would want to accept such plan. Um, after rejecting the Olmert plan. Um, and rejecting the Camp David offer. I don't see Abu Mazen would uh, want to live this life uh, accepting, after all those years, uh, such a plan that doesn't offer almost anything to the Palestinian. Now the question is, if there are Palestinian candidates um, within the Palestinian politics that want to take this plan and to promote it while they are supported by Arab states, mainly some of the Arab Gulf states. Um, that's a possibility, but I really don't see how, how, the, how the Palestinian leadership can endorse such a plan. I mean, it's really difficult because I don't see that they can offer anything uh, to the Palestinian. Uh, I mean, the Palestinians are long ago are willing to surrender, but nobody's accepting them surrendering <laughs> because they are not given even the place, the land where they can stand and say proudly, we are surrendering. I mean, they're limiting them to such small enclaves that if they want to stand and shout that we are surrendering, nobody would hear them because they are so small, so little, so, uh, so imprisoned. So I really don't see... And we should listen, actually, to King uh, Abdullah's, uh, before two weeks, declaration uh, saying that we reject the, um, the Trump, the pressures by the Americans um, for Jordan to be the alternative homeland uh, for Palestinians, which means it means something when, when someone like King Abdullah, who almost has no power, I mean, he has no economic, no military power, nothing. And he's counting pretty much on the Saudis, um, on the Americans, on the international community. And if he himself reached the point to say no, um, I think it says, it says something, that the plan has nothing to offer. And even people like Abdullah is ready to say no. Uh, I don't think we can imagine a situation where Abdullah says no and Abu Mazen says yes. It's difficult to imagine something like that. Unless we'll be surprised. <laughs> Last question. Yeah, um, David Mack from the Middle East Institute. David, uh, yeah. And my question is going to be for the moderator. Oh. Rather than putting uh, our Arab League representative on the spot, why don't you predict to us, um, if we suspend disbelief for a moment, 
that this deal of the century is ever actually going to be revealed to the public. Um, do you believe that um, King Salman is going to agree to this? Um, or will he undercut the crown prince and the crown prince's diplomacy in this regard? Well, you certainly abused your right to <laughs> ask questions. <laughs> but, uh, my, own, my own personal view uh, um, and, and what I've said uh, um, in, in some of the things that I've written is that no, I don't see uh, I don't see the Saudis. I mean, again, and it goes back to the point that none of us knows the details. We we think that we know more or less the outlines of what the administration is prepared to put on the table, which would be something along the lines of Palestinian autonomy, but not sovereignty. Um, uh, perhaps uh, a recognition of the annexation of settlement blocks. Um, continued uh, Israeli uh, ability to operate on security issues in the uh, in, in the Palestinian territories, et cetera, et cetera, uh, with you know the old, you know with the, with the inducement to the Palestinians of some kind of an economic payout that would be financed by primarily the Saudis and, and the Emiratis and, and maybe some of the other um, Gulf states. Uh, if that, in fact, is what this deal of the century is. My own sense is that King Salman would not be interested in it because, for, for several reasons. One, uh, my own thought, is, as I said to Raf, is that you know, Salman, more than Mohammed bin Salman, understands the Palestinian issue and has been responsible for it for decades uh, within uh, the Saudi royal family, uh, has always been sympathetic to the Palestinian issue. Uh, he has reiterated in the last few weeks that Saudi Arabia's position remains the Arab Peace Initiative that King Abdullah put on the table, uh, what, 17 years ago, uh, and that he hasn't moved off of that. Uh, and uh, I think that even if, even if the, um, the government of Saudi Arabia were interested in pursuing you know, or supporting the American initiative, there are two issues that they would um, that would give them pause. One is the fact that there is, uh, as best we can tell, and if you look at Jim Zogby's polling, uh, there is zero support among Saudis uh, for that kind of uh, of initiative, uh, and that even if they were prepared to overlook what the Saudi population thinks, uh, the fact of the matter is that they would be absolutely slaughtered. Uh, in uh, the larger Arab and Islamic world if they were to go down that line. And just think of what Tehran would say, just think of what Ankara would say. Uh, and if the Saudis continue to put their highest priority on leadership of the Islamic world, which I, I think they do, um, they could not possibly sell out the Palestinians uh, in that way. So. So I, I don't think that the Saudis would be interested in the absence of something that was more serious uh, from the administration in, in, um, in giving the Palestinians something that they could accept, my own thought. And that's the last question. So 
Um, so anyway, I want to I want to thank Julia Pittner and the uh, Institute for Palestinian Studies for helping uh, or to organize this, and I especially want to thank uh, Dr. Raf Zareg for uh, spending this time with us. Thank you.